But the most beautiful thing of all, the mystic said that, that in some sense, Joseph's love for God was so great that it almost took something like a miracle all of his life for it not to just consume him totally and, and, and make his spirit leave his body. That God had preserved him that way. But now at the end, the Lord as a grace was withdrawing that so that what finally killed him wasn't the illness, it was his great love for God. Have you ever wondered about the inside story of the saints? What happened behind the scenes? What about St. Joseph? He's the model for fatherhood. He's hardly ever mentioned in the scriptures. Yep, we know about the encounter with the angel. He's told in a dream to take Our Lady as his wife and to flee to Egypt. But after that, we don't hear about him at all. Well, he is mentioned when in the scriptures it says, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Well, we certainly get a glimpse at the silent life of Jesus and Mary in the Passion of the Christ, but not St. Joseph, at least not directly. There is a scene that Jesus builds a table and explains it to his mother, so we can infer that he learned carpentry skills from his father. Have a look. Yet the foster father of Christ had an integral role in the ex-gay man Milo Yiannopoulos' decision to leave his homosexual lifestyle behind and lead a chaste lifestyle instead. Yiannopoulos came on my show and talked about how the consecration of St. Joseph was how he committed to a life of chastity. Check it out. I felt as though as an entry point into this way of living that St. Joseph is kind of the perfect point of commonality with all of the things that have preoccupied me professionally and spiritually as you know the patriarch as the spiritual father as you know the, the head of the holy family what is it about saint joseph that is so moving to us as we look for a model of masculinity fatherhood especially when it seems he's so absent in the scriptures and even in the adaptations of the life of christ Today, our guest is Dr. Paul Thigpen. He will be speaking about his new book, The Life of St. Joseph as Seen by the Mystics, where he goes into detail about the private relations that certain mystics have had about the life of St. Joseph. But first, a little background. Let's start from the beginning. God chose St. Joseph to love, serve, and protect his family, and entrusted Jesus to his fatherhood. So, even though God could have provided for the mother and child himself, he placed his son, his only son, in a family with a human father. Now, this points to the essential role of fathers in the physical, emotional, and spiritual development of their children, but this role has come under attack. And now, more than ever, it is absolutely necessary for fathers to look to St. Joseph as a model. 
Father Donald Calloway wrote that great book about the consecration of St. Joseph that Milo Yiannopoulos was so affected by. He wrote it to draw men closer to St. Joseph in a profound journey of spiritual renewal for men in his book, Consecration to St. Joseph, The Wonders of Our Spiritual Father. I've had him on the show as well in the past, so check out the link in the description if you missed it. To learn more about the Consecration of St. Joseph, please visit consecrationtostjoseph.org. Father Serafino Lanceta, a very close friend of LifeSite, a priest of St. Mary's and St. Columba's Catholic Church in Gosport, UK, wrote a reflection on St. Joseph's feast day, March 19th in 2020. He says that the mystery of the relationship between St. Joseph and the Blessed Virgin Mary is the source of the whole mystery concerning St. Joseph and the way he comes into play in the New Testament and in the Church. He writes, and I quote, Through the espousal with Mary, Joseph can embrace Jesus and hold him in his arms. Joseph is therefore the most perfect icon of Marian consecration. With him, the ancient motto starts, To Jesus through Mary. We find this to be the case. As the Gospel of Matthew says in Matthew 1, 18 and 19, it introduces Joseph first as the husband of Mary, and then as a just man. Interestingly, St. Thomas Aquinas discussed justice and its connection to all the virtues in the Summa Theologica. St. Aquinas says, there must be one supreme virtue essentially distinct from every other virtue which directs all the virtues to the common good, and this virtue is legal justice. In other words, justice directs all of the virtues to the common good, so if Joseph is a just man, he is virtuous and righteous. This adds to our model of St. Joseph's masculinity and fatherhood because in light of this deeper meaning of a just man, we see that a father is called to be strong in all virtues, directing them through justice. Hello, LifeSite friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Each round is stamped on the back with an image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, we feature LifeSite's logo, surrounded by brilliant sunbursts and draped with olive branches, and each round commemorates LifeSite's 25 years of pro-life, pro-family reporting in America, Canada, and beyond. These one troy ounce rounds are 0.999 pure silver, and LifeSite has just under 10,000 in stock. They're beautiful, historic, and forever enshrining the most important American pro-life victory of a generation. This first edition LifeSite Silver Round is the perfect gift for yourself or anyone you love that collects precious metals and is passionately pro-life. And each purchase helps directly fund LifeSite's pro-life and pro-family mission. This is the first precious metals collectible of its kind that is directly supporting LifeSite's worldwide mission that you know, love, and trust. And now it can be yours while limited supplies last. Get your one troy ounce rounds of 99% pure silver today by clicking the first link below and celebrate life with all of us at LifeSite News. So, we can work to piece together a cleaner image of St. Joseph but it certainly takes quite a bit of digging. 
Dr. Paul Thigpen, in his The Life of St. Joseph as Seen by the Mystics, compiles the private revelations of five visionaries. St. Bridget of Sweden, servant of God Marina de Escobar, Venerable Mary of Agreda, Venerable Maria Cecilia Baggi, and Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. What an amazing picture of this great saint develops. These revelations shed light on why it is significant to honor and love St. Joseph, why he is the patron saint of families, why he's good with selling your home, and he's the patron of the dying. It shows us his early life and the growth in virtue, his connection to the lineage of David, and his meekness and love for handiwork that led him to become a carpenter. Up next, Dr. Paul Thigben. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Paul Thigpen, welcome to the program. Great to be here, John Henry. Thanks for the invitation, brother. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So, Paul, thank you, first of all, for writing a book to give us deeper insight into the foster father of our Lord, into St. Joseph. Um, first of all, what inspired you to write the book? Well, first of all, St. Joseph and I are, are old friends. <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound too familiar, but I came into the church in uh, 93, so it'll be, what, 30 years coming soon, and um, chose him as my my own you know, foster father, in a sense, my patron saint. And um, gosh, our, our home here is, is named St. Joseph's Refuge, right up in the mountains, dedicated to him. He has helped me and my family through so many situations and um, and also with real estate situations. What does St. Joseph has to do with real estate situations? I, I know, but I think our listeners would really love to hear, um, because maybe they've heard that before, St. Joseph, something about selling has a right. Tell us. Well, because he's you know, he's patron of, of the home and of, of marriage and family life. Um, and the home real estate sales, especially for, for homes, are, of course, such an important part of, of family life, where you're going to live. And he's known as the patron saint of of uh, realtors and, and real estate deals. And don't want to, you know, I don't know about commercial deals, but certainly with homes. And I, even the home we're in now, um, if, I, if I can take, you know, take a minute to talk about this. It's not the first time this has happened. We were looking for a place up in the mountains to retire. And... Um, found a place that looked, you know, looked like it would be, you know, just right. But it was during the COVID thing. There have been lockdowns. So we've, we couldn't visit it at first. But as we started to go, we knew it had a couple of creeks in the yard. It's in, we're in a rainforest here. And I said to our Blessed Mother, you know, I, I, I don't usually ask for signs. And, and right now I'm not exactly asking for a sign. But if you'd like to to give me some kind of confirmation, in addition to the creeks, I would, I would love to have a spring. Because the spring is a sign of purity. You gave St. Bernadette a spring. All those things, and Saint Joseph, you know, if if you'd like to give us a sign, we'll we'll just follow our prudence, but that the Lord gives us. But if you'd like to give us a sign, uh, please do, and it can be anything, just as long as I know it is a sign from Saint Joe. So we get here, the house is looking great. It's an older home, you know, it takes some work. We're out uh, looking at the two creeks in the yard, and I say, Blessed Mother, you know, if if you're gonna gonna give us a spring, this would be a good time. And I go walking across the yard, and sure enough, I find a spring. More than one. I said, okay, say, Joseph, I, uh, I don't know you know, if you're going to give a sign or not, but that's okay. And uh, I went to the edge of the lot where there was a mortared stone pillar that I thought was curious when we first drove up because it, it looked like a very fancy mailbox post 
very old, but the mailboxes were were down the road. So I went around to look and I'm saying to St. Joseph, you know, if you want to give me a sign, be great. But if not, I just need to know it's a sign from you. And I walk around the post. It's been, the post has been there probably 30 years, mortared stones. But right in the middle of the mortared stones, there was a brick. And the brick had been turned sideways so you could see the imprint on the top of the brick. And it said in great bold letters, St. Joe. And I said, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that brick's probably been here 30 years, but she had it here so I could see the sign. I think I got the message. And we love the home. We call it St. Joseph's Refuge. It has a sign hanging on that post now that says St. Joseph's Refuge. Your book basically weaves together a life of St. Joseph based on uh, revelations, private revelations, from saints, very famous saints. Why don't you explain? They're all mystics. They're not all you know, fully canonized saints, but... Um, kind of on, on the way. Probably some of the, the best-known ones would be Catherine Emmerich, of course. I think most of our re listeners would know her. But also um, Venerable Mary of Agreda, probably most of them heard of her. St. Bridget of Sweden, we've all heard of. Uh, the Venerable Marina de Escobar and Venerable Maria Cecilia Baez. They all lived across several centuries, uh, but all of them um, beautiful, beautiful visions that, you know, the church certainly has not condemned, but has... Uh, is left to our reading or devotion. And you know, some folks that like, a, uh, you remember the the Passion of the Christ, the movie that um, Mel Gibson uh, produced, directed for us. There were scenes in there that were not from the gospel. And everyone kind of knew when they were, were watching it that, uh, okay, he's, he's drawing other things. This isn't from the gospel. So he's not claiming that these are gospel things. But if you knew the visions of these these women, you know that in particular, Mary of Agreda and Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, uh, scenes he drew from their their visions were in that movie. So, for instance, when um, our, our Blessed Mother and Mary Magdalene are cleaning up, trying to get desperately the precious blood of our Lord after the, the flagellation off the stones, and another person comes in who's Claudia Pontius Pilate's wife, according to tradition, helps them. That's a scene from one of the, the mystics. So what I'm saying is that... Um, that kind of gives us a, a good idea of the kind of thing we're talking about here, that it's uh, the church you know, tells us we don't take these things as gospel. We don't take them even as, as history, and we can't because uh, they had some of the some of the revelations of different women actually disagreed in certain important details. So you know you can't take them as history. But what you can do is take them the way you would take those scenes in Mel Gibson's uh, movie as, as a, a very powerful sacred drama that brings us more deeply into the gospel stories. The same way the meditation methods of St. Ignatius of Loyola will bring us to the gospel. where He would say, imagine yourself there in the scene, put yourself in that scene and use your, uh, but in my old Pentecostal days before my conversion, I used to call a sanctified imagination, use your imagination in a holy way. Historians might, might actually question you on that because um, there's so many conflicting versions of history um, that uh, you might be able to take them as history as well. But nonetheless, <laughs> so tell us about um, the the storyline that you've got here. Where does it take us from with St. Joseph? Are we Where are we starting from? Where are we ending with? It's his entire life. So it starts with talking about his, uh, his childhood, early childhood, um, young adult life. Uh, those are those are you know shorter sections, but uh, then through to his his meeting Mary and the betrothal, and then all the, as, uh, obviously all the events surrounding the nativity that we we remember when we we pray the um, mysteries of the rosary, 
and uh, and then the hidden years, so-called, in Nazareth, where he's there with Jesus and Mary, and then beautifully uh, the, the later years of his life and um, and his death. And then at the end, I have uh, drawn from some of them, some of what the, the missionaries had to say about the special graces that we have in our, uh, through devotion to St. Joseph. Is there anything that links all these visionaries together that uh, that you've seen? I mean, the obvious things, you know, great faith, great devotion to Our Lady, great devotion to St. Joseph, beautiful spiritual insight into the, the human person as well as into spiritual realities. Um, as I mentioned in the book, they weren't necessarily doctors of science or theology or history, but they were definitely doctors of the soul. They remind me in certain ways of uh, the ancient monks of the, the desert. When you read their um, their lives and their sayings, it's not kind of abstract theology and stuff. They they have this incredible insight into how a soul works and what makes it this way and what you know what the choices make and that kind of thing. And so you get those kinds of insights and in all and all of these these visionaries into not just Our Lady and, and Saint Joseph and, and you know some of Jesus, but into the people that they interacted with. You learn more about you know Judas, so you learn more about uh, Our Lady's parents, or more about the the people in Egypt and what it would have been like to interact with the pagan people there. You also have a extremely visual uh, imagination, not in the sense of making it up, but of being able to picture in the mind uh, what God was was showing them and saying to them, so that you have this. Uh, some of the scenes are just remarkably detailed, and um, give you give you everything that you would get in in Mel Gibson's movie, for instance, of so the not just the person but everything around. Just a quick note before we return: if you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com/slash/subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesightnews.com. And now, back to the video. Give us one of these stories that struck you, that, that helped you in your devotion. I mean, this is what Private Revelation is for. It's, it's to help us deepen our devotion. What is one of these stories of St. Joseph, un unknown, largely unknown, whatever, but that struck you and, and sort of inspired you to, to take this on? The way they described the dream that he has where the angel tells him, get up right now, go and take the mother of, of the child and the child into Egypt because Herod's out to kill him. And all we know from scriptures, is he's basically said, yes, sir, <laughs> to the Lord and, uh, and took them. And we don't have any details, but what it begins to do is unfold what kind of man would be able to do that. What faith would it take? What courage would it take? What what trust, what just integrity that it would take for a man to get up in the middle of the night and say, we've got to go. Uh, I mean, we start thinking about, he probably hit the tools of his trade. We're probably back in Nazareth instead of Bethlehem. He almost certainly wouldn't have known the Egyptian language or known people in Egypt. Uh, he wouldn't have had a job waiting for him there. Uh, just the, it's, it's a pagan culture. They're not probably not real happy about Jewish people coming in and just the, the dangers of the road. And so it would describe the dangers of the road. And uh, one, of, one of the, we actually have an ancient legend about how St. Dismas, the, which is the legendary name or ancient name given to this thief on the cross, who um, asked the Lord, you know, for his forgiveness at the end, that ancient story that he was actually a thief on the road while they were coming through and that he um, he kept the other thieves from harming them, 
And then later on, then what happened on the on the cross on the day of the crucifixion was a, a kind of fitting reward for for his kindness to them. Now they take it a slightly different direction, but it's it's beautiful where um, Dismas is a boy whose family is uh, among the the thieves, and his father is the one who tells the rest of them, "No, don't hurt them," because they're going to catch him and sell him to slavery. But the boy has leprosy. And they have the Holy Family spend the night with them. And while they, when they do, the mother realizes something's very special about the child and asks if, if she could have the, the child's bath water, the, you know, Jesus' bath water to bathe the boy. And, and Mary says, yes, do. And then, but you need to preserve it because it's going to be special. And then the boy's healed of leprosy. So he goes on in the, you know, in this account, then eventually he, um, he is still a thief, but it all comes back around where somehow you know, that's because of what happened. His faith was already planted in him a long time ago by that miracle. But then the rest of the story in Egypt is especially appealing to me. There, we have ancient stories about the, you may have heard of, uh, that when they get to Egypt, whenever they walk into a place that has the Egyptian idols, the idols all fall down <laughs> before Jesus. And so they have that going on, but also the people say, what do you get out of here? What are you doing? You're destroying our temples and that kind of thing. But the kind of ill treatment they probably would have had there. And yet um, in the story, Jesus still makes friends with the little boys and, um, and begins to win people's hearts over. So very touching, uh, but especially to realize the sacrifices that Joseph had to make then and, and, and during the silent years back in. Nazareth, how people would have treated him. They showed some people saying to him, this, this boy you've got here, he should be a rabbi. He shouldn't be working in a you know, shop like this. What do you, should he send him off to school? And Joseph can't say a word. And so he just has to put up with it. And uh, you're mistreating him by doing this. But the after day, Joseph just, he knows what's going on. He can't talk about what's, what's going on, but he's a very patient man. Now, Paul, you were yourself not a Catholic, right? You were an evangelical? Yes, and, and Pentecostal. Mm -hmm. And Pentecostal. So how is it that someone from that background comes to this? Because this is, this is come to the faith and then go right into the very heart of something that would be um, very much disconnected from where you were before. Were before. Um, tell us a little bit about your conversion story, if you will. Let me say that uh, I actually gave a paper back when I was a college professor at the American Academy of Religion meeting in San Francisco about what I call the, the Pentecostal sacramental imagination. And what I meant by that was that in certain ways, Pentecostals more than other evangelicals have this kind of understanding of the sacramental nature without even realizing what it is. So that unlike, at least in the old days, most other uh, Protestant Christians, they believe that body postures were important in worship. They would lay hands, they would use anointing oil, they would pray and expect miracles. They would do exorcisms or, you know, attempt exorcisms, things that the rest of the Protestant world had rejected. But because of their study of the scripture, they had embraced that all pointed to the reality to them for, for them that God uses the matter of our world as a vehicle for grace in certain ways. And so for folks like that, it's not as large a leap into the Catholic faith as it might be for some. Even if they've been taught, you know, the Catholic Church is wrong. For me, um, that that helped prepare me, of course. But uh, for me, it was a matter of my, my doctoral program. I uh, got a master's in peace, all, all three of my degrees. First one was at Yale, last two at Emory. 
um, or basically in historical theology. And so that took me back to the church fathers, first of all, to start studying. And that's what did it for me. You know, St. John Henry Newman, of course, has said before, but famously that to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And that's what began to happen to me. Other things too, all kinds of things, uh, people around me who are Catholic, who are great witnesses. But as I began to read the early fathers, especially, I thought, oh my goodness, they're Catholic. What what can I, you know, <laughs> this is not what I thought it was. And eventually the time came where it would have been against my conscience not to become Catholic. It's a struggle nonetheless, I would think, because you're, you're sort of, life is formed, you're an adult, you're, it's, it's still a hard transition. So even though you might be convinced at one level, that step is still difficult to do. My wife wasn't on board at the beginning. My children weren't on board. Along with studying, I was, I was a writer for a number of evangelical publications. Um, at one time, an editor for an evangelical magazine that uh, they weren't very happy when they heard that I was thinking about this. So I knew, you know, I would lose things. I was ordained as a pastor, actually. So for a few years, I was uh, like an associate pastor at a church. And I knew I had to give up ordination, all those things. But it's like the Pearl of Great Price, John Henry. You know, once you realize what a what a treasure the church is, then if you have to sell all you have to give it, to give it, then do it. You just have to do it. And in the end, the Lord really came through to to convince my wife and brought the children along. So we did it all come into to the church together. Beautiful. Beautiful. How long ago was that? In April, it'll be 30 years. So it was in 1993. St. Joseph is known throughout the Catholic world as the patron of the dying. Um, Maybe you can tell us from the visions of the saints, why is that? Because we don't get much in the scriptures about that at all, yet it's very strong tradition in the church and he's the patron of the dying. How did it look like from the saints' perspective? One of the most powerful passages in the book is where I wove together the uh, the visions about uh, the in, in years of his life. They saw him uh, suffering a great deal from physical uh, ailments. And, um, and Jesus and Mary ministering to him during that time, drawing close to him during that time. And, uh, but of course, suffering it all with great patience and, and uh, allowing it to, to draw him closer uh, to his son and, and to God the Father. But what I, what I really loved at the end is that it, it shows Jesus and, and Joseph talking privately. And uh, it's so touching. It brought, you know, it caused me to choke up. It, it especially ministered to me because my father died, well, a long time ago now. It's, it's been 47 years, I guess. Uh, had an extended illness at the end of his life. And he was a Christian. And, you know, we, neither of us were Catholic at the time. But he he suffered a great deal. But as I like to say, he allowed the suffering to refine him instead of define him and lived in, in great faith. And people who come to see him would tell me, I came to, to cheer your father up and he cheered me up with his faith. And I got the privilege of moving back home, my wife and I, so that I could be with him during those months. And it just brought all that back to me as I was reading about Jesus taking care of Joseph. But the most beautiful thing of all, I think, was that the mystic said that that in some sense, Joseph's love for God was so great that it almost took something like a miracle all of his life for it not to just consume him totally and, and, and make his spirit leave his body. That God had preserved him that way. But now at the end, the Lord as a grace was withdrawing that so that what finally killed him wasn't, wasn't the illness. It was his great love for God. 
and that it just consumed him until finally his, his spirit burst the bonds of his body. Lovely thing to think about, to ponder what that would mean. That's a, such a strange question. You know, Jesus healed so many people. It seemed like just run of the mill. He could do it at, at whim. And he didn't preserve the life of his dad. Was there some understanding given in the book about that? Simply that God's plan for Joseph was was otherwise. Um, it is interesting that um, one of the visionaries uh, seemed to, to see and to hear that Joseph's love and tenderness toward his son was his foster son was so great that it would have been just a horrible thing for him to have to watch his son crucified the way Our Lady did. That it was part of her role to do that. She was chosen to do that, but it was but he was spared that. And that that's one reason why God allowed him to, to go into his reward before those years. So that's something to, to think about. There's so many thoughts about St. Joseph and his life. There's a popular song that gets p played around Christmas that's about Mary, did you know? It's beautiful, beautiful song. And uh, it's actually some uh, Protestants actually contemplating Our Lady, which is kind of beautiful all by itself. But funny enough, I think compared to everybody else, including us today, Mary did know a heck of a lot more than we even know now. But what's interesting to me as well, I've often thought about that St. Joseph in that same sort of space and somewhat knowledge as well. How did he interact with our Lord, with our Lady? He knew he was dealing with God. I was just, it's mind-blowing to contemplate. Um, but any thoughts there? Well, it's lovely to say. Another thing I really love about the story, the, the way they, you know, they presented it, was um, the great deference that Mary and Joseph showed for each other, which is such a, said, a wonderful role model for, for married couples. And she's, at her heart, she's saying, he's my husband. I need to show him the proper deference for that. And he's saying, She's the mother of God. I've got to show the proper deference for that. How do I do that? And they're deferring to each other all along. There's a, uh, they they say that there was in the story that you know in the, in the visions that there had been a custom of the time among the Jewish people to um, that a husband and wife at the beginning are supposed to spend some time studying one another so that they can learn better how to deal with each other in a, in a proper righteous way and and deferentially. And during that time, they're they're kind of doing that. And it's, uh, I mean, in some ways, it's almost comical the way each one is deferring to the other. Um, so you have things like they, they show on the way to Bethlehem, Mary's carrying the baby and close to delivery and, and they have a donkey for her to ride. But she cares so much for Joseph that she keeps insisting, I let me walk and let you ride for a while. So beautiful. But Joseph just can't stand to do that. So what he says is, okay, you can get off and walk, but I'm going to walk with you. And the three of us, you, me, and the donkey, are going to walk together. There's just, he's just trying to figure out how to show proper deference. So she's trying to be you know, kind and compassionate to him. And it's a lovely thing. It's a lovely thing to see. Beautiful. Beautiful. So tell us, where can we get your book? You can go to, online to tanbooks.com. The publisher is Tan Books, or to your local Catholic bookstore. March 19th is known in the church as the Feast of St. Joseph. Why is that? You know, to be honest, I'm not sure how they settled on that day. That's a great question. We know why they celebrate May 1st as the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, because it was you know, the church's way of saying, okay, when the communists have celebrated May 1st as the 
a great day for laborers and um, taking trying to take minds and hearts in the wrong direction. The church said, here's, here's the, the most wonderful laborer of all, and he's the patron of laborers' workers. So let's celebrate that that day. Any final thoughts on St. Joseph for us on your book? Give it a chance to, to soak into your heart. If you read it, make sure you read the intro talking about who the visionaries were. And, and again, what we said before about the, the spiritual value of them. Do like St. Ignatius of Loyola and encourage us to do. Uh, put yourself into the scene. And um, I had to, there were so many, so much material. I had to choose certain details. But you know, let the details that I have given just kind of settle down to your spirit and, um, and see what you see and what, and what you hear. And I think you'll come away with a much deeper love for St. Joseph. And because of that love, a greater love for Our Lady and for our Lord. Absolutely beautiful. Paul Thigpen, thank you so much for what you've done. Look forward to uh, imbibing in your book. And uh, God bless you. Thank you, John. God bless you and all your viewers. And God bless all of you. Go pick up that book. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.